0: guys miss me? Hey, if you have a Bible, would you do me a favor and open it to the book of 2 Corinthians? We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, 2 Corinthians, it's in the New Testament. It comes after, you guessed it, 1 Corinthians. And we are going to have a a great time camping out in chapter 7 as well as verses 5 through 10. And if you didn't bring your Bible, not to worry. made sure it got you covered. I'm going to have the words right there on the screen behind me and if you have a phone you can always google the passage as well it's great what technology can do today but while you're turning there i just want to let you know how excited i am to bring us to the conclusion of our sermon series entitled woven stories now some of you might have been with us since the beginning of the series but if this is your first time here tonight over the past 10 weeks our church has gone through this series that has focused on relationships but more specifically how God is weaving together the stories of our relationships into this beautiful intricate tapestry and throughout this series what we've learned is some pretty cool things about the power of storytelling We said that stories have this unique way of captivating our attention and engaging our emotions. We said that they provide a framework or a structure for us to be able to understand ourselves as well as the world that we live in. And they also offer valuable perspective on the different themes, archetypes and objectives of how we can navigate the complexities of life as well as the complexities of relationships. And by anchoring ourselves in the gospel and adopting a gospel lens, we've been able to travel through some pretty thought-provoking conversations centered around topics like shame and intimacy. We saw firsthand how a skillfully woven story can help us foster empathy and embrace the unique concept of forgiveness. And even when we had to confront sensitive and intricate conversations such as sexuality, the challenges of singleness or the arduous task of conflict resolution. We gain valuable wisdom on the power of our words and learn that our words have the ability to ignite life or bring forth a destructive force that is akin to death. Throughout this series, though, one theme seems to be common throughout every conversation, and that is this relationships are messy. Relationships are messy and it's a humbling realization to know that we are far better at creating messes in our relationships than we are at cleaning them up. So what are we to do? What are we to do about the messes that we create in our life? Well, I think the book of second Corinthians is going to have a lot of insight on how we can answer that question. But before we do, I'd like to take a quick poll in the room as it relates to tonight's sermon. Raise your hand. If you've ever felt a connection to another person ever, it could be a family member, <laughs> romantic partner, yeah, keep them up, keep them up. If your hand is in the air, congratulations, you've experienced what we call a relationship. Now that I've leveled the play- playing field and everyone's kind of on the same page, I, I want to say that I love relationships. I do. I genuinely love them. I, I love all the different kinds of relationships that I have in my life, whether they be with my friends, my family, or my wife. And, and I can honestly say that my life is a lot better because of the relationships that I have. But what I find fascinating is that relationships seem to be central to the human experience. Actually, no, I'm going to take it a step further. I think relationships define the human experience. I mean, think about it. Even if you were the last person on planet Earth, you would still crave connection, right? Have you ever seen that uh, movie Castaway by Tom Hanks? great movie. If you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. But in the movie, Tom Hanks finds himself uh, surviving a horrific plane crash, and he finds himself deserted on a, uh, stranded on a deserted island. And throughout the movie, he is desperately trying to stay alive, and he's desperately trying to find a way to get back home. But what we see throughout the course of the movie is that his longing to get back home is because of connection, because of relationship. And this feeling is so strong that it actually ends up with him creating an imaginary friend named Wilson out of a volleyball. Now, we might chuckle at that, but the reality is, is every person in this room raised their hand because they felt connection to another person. And if all of those connections were to go away, who's to say that we wouldn't do the same? I mean, relationships. We need them. We love them. And even if you're the most introverted person that you know and you love your alone time, chances are there's only so much alone time that you love before you start craving connection again. I mean, didn't COVID prove that to be true? That you and I, as we sheltered in place, some of us sheltered with friends and family, maybe others of us sheltered by ourselves. we, it was fun for about the first week or so, but then there got to be that point where we all desired more connection. And by the way, if you sheltered by yourself, man, I commend you because that, that had to be hard, right? It had to be stressful, painful, and lonely. You know, human beings, we, we intuitively know that isolation is not good for the soul, It's one of the reasons why solitary confinement is considered one of the harshest forms of punishment in the West. I mean, the reason for this is profound. Isolation, much like the conditions in solitary confinement, has been linked to a staggering 26% increase in premature death. Think about that. And the reasons for this are due to the fact that the body's stress response is elevated. There's elevated cortisol levels. There's heightened blood pressure. There's inflammation that goes throughout the whole body. And what it tells us is that we need relationships. We love relationships. We love relationships because God designed us for relationships. I mean, think back to the beginning of the story where God created the universe and he spoke the world into existence and he created light and he created darkness and he created the sky and the sea and the birds and the fish and then he created the animals and then he created man and he looked at man and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. So what did he do? He created a companion, an equal partner. He created woman and he looked at it and he said, It was very good. We love relationships. You know, if you've ever spent any time in church, you might have come across this theological concept called the Trinity. And the Trinity is a Christian belief that says that God exists in three distinct persons. So like God the Father, God the Son, who's Jesus, God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, yet one God Three in one, all sharing the same attributes, all sharing the same essence. What the Trinity shows us, though, is that God is in relationship with himself. And because you and I are created in the image of God, it's no wonder why we would long for relationships. I mean, if you think about it, relationships make up a massive part of our everyday life, and they contribute to how we feel on a daily basis, and there's no escaping them, even if you wanted to. All of the media that we consume, the greatest pieces of literature, art, music, cinema, all are centered around some kind of relationship. And for those that aren't, chances are that the artist created it because it derived from some sort of relationship that they were feeling in their life. We love relationships, but here's a harsh truth. No one relationship is perfect. You know, we all do things, say things that either unintentionally or intentionally hurt someone. And if we're not careful, we can carry these wounds with us and and if left unchecked, they can even end the best of relationships. And so sometimes that's a good thing. You know, it it might be for the better. Other times, though, it's for the worse. So if we're going to grasp the hope for relationships, then we need to come to a fundamental understanding of every relationship in our lives, and that is this. Every relationship you have in your life is either moving closer together or it's drifting apart. Every relationship is either moving closer together or it's drifting apart. Now, I know how that sounds, so let me clarify a few things. When I say this, if you have a relationship in your life that you haven't engaged with in a while, what I am not saying is that you don't have love for that person. I'm also not putting sole blame on you if you feel like there is a relationship in your life that has grown stagnant over time. The point that I'm trying to make is that for for relationships to thrive, they require effort and intentionality. I mean, think of a garden, right? In order for a garden to bloom and blossom, it requires effort. If the gardener doesn't pay attention to the flowers, they will wither away and die. But if it gives sunlight, water, if he speaks over the flowers, then they eventually bloom into a wonderful blossom. Here's the thing. You are an evolving person. You are a living, breathing, organic person, and you are not the same person you were two years ago. That's a good thing. You have different thoughts, different opinions, different preferences. And so it's only natural that as you grow, that your relationships would grow with you it's important that we adapt to those changes but here's the risk that we have when we engage in relationship and this is the risk with every relationship that we have that if we want to deepen the relationship the closer that we become the more likely we are to make mistakes proximity it does this weird thing where it makes us more likely to do missteps So the question that we have to confront tonight is how do we find the hope for relationships knowing that we're wired for connection yet we're susceptible to mistakes? Well, the book of 2 Corinthians has a lot to say on this, but before we get into the passage, I think it's important for us to understand the situation that's taking place in Corinth. You see, the apostle Paul, he, he had a complicated but significant relationship with the corinthians he he established the church on his second missionary journey and he spent about 18 months in corinth you know planting the church establishing the leadership and governance and then teaching all of the church its doctrines and after he had spent those 18 months he went away because he had to go plant more churches But in his absence, he was shocked to find that the church completely imploded on himself. I mean, it was so bad that there were members that were taking each other to court. There were all these moral issues, doctrinal controversies, and the church was completely imploding. And so Paul, what he does is he, he writes a couple of letters, two of which we find right in the Bible, First and Second Corinthians. And he writes to them strongly so that they would become strengthened in their faith and turn in a different direction. He then makes one more visit to Corinth, and that visit is marked with, you know, difficulty and sorrow. And, and then he writes them a letter. And this letter ends up giving us a glimmer of how we are to find hope in relationships. If you would, look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 5. He writes, in fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you're feeling confused, it's okay. I was too when I first read this. But basically what's happening is Paul is telling the Corinthians that he's really upset by what took place in Corinth. I mean, he is shocked to see that they are arguing among themselves, believing different things about the teachings of Jesus, and acting in ways that he knows God would not be proud of. So what he does is he does what he knows how to do best, and he writes this strongly worded letter. And this letter, it's meant to rebuke what they're doing so that they can turn back to the way that they need to go. But after he sends it, he feels grieved. He's sad. I don't know if you've ever been in a place in your life where you had to have a really difficult conversation with someone, and you know that you had to say some harsh things, but it was out of love, and then you said it, and you didn't know how they would receive it. And so you had to wait and wait. So Paul's in this waiting process. He's waiting to hear if they would receive his message the way it was intended. And then along comes Titus. And Titus comes up to him and he gives him good news saying that the Corinthians, they received your letter. And, and although they were grieved by it, their grief didn't lead them to feeling hopeless. It actually made them take a hard, good look at themselves and realize the implications of their actions, and it led to repentance. The, the letter, notice, it didn't lead to regret. It led to repentance. And repentance, I know we hear that a lot, especially as it comes to church, and it might have a negative connotation to it. But I, I have to say, repentance is one of the most beautiful things that anyone can do. it's It's a way of being able to show that you are truly sorry for what you have done. In fact, if you were to study the word repentance in the original Greek, what you'll find is the term. It just means to turn around or go in a different direction. And this concept, it's vital if we're going to have healthy relationships in our lives. But what is, what is this verse saying that gets us to repentance? Because that's the question, right? It's not just enough to say, I have repentance. There's a process that takes us there. And so what is it? Grief. But more specifically, godly grief. If you would, look at verse 8. It says, for even if I grieved you with my letter. Paul is saying, even though I know what I wrote was going to make you upset, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice. He knows that the letter was going to probably make them sad. He knows that a harsh word was probably going to make them feel down in the dumps in the wild, but he didn't do it out of spite. He did it out of love. And because of that, he knows that it was going to lead to rejoicing. And he says, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance I believe that every person, every person in this room, every person who's watching online experiences grief at some point or another. Even people who feel the most confident, the most unapologetic, we all experience grief. And what's interesting about grief is that not all forms of grief are the same and not all forms of grief lead to repentance. Often we're merely sorry for the fact that we got caught And now we're having to face the consequence of our actions. You know, Kevin DeYoung, who is an American theologian, he wrote an article in Christianity Today, and he distinguishes the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. And this is what he says. He says that godly grief acknowledges the vertical dimension of our sin, meaning that when we wrong someone else, it's not that we just commit an offense against the other person what we've done is we've committed offense to another person, but also we've committed an offense towards God. And we recognize that it is offensive to God and it violates his law. Godly grief leads to true repentance, which brings about a change in our lives that leads to salvation. But on the other hand, worldly grief, it keeps us stagnant, immobilized, dwelling on our mistakes and seeking validation from others. Now, if we truly want to change, we need to move beyond feeling sorry and take action against our sinful behaviors by repenting. I like to summarize what Kevin said this way. Repentance is a change in how I think that leads to a change in how I behave. Repentance is how a change in how I think that leads to a change in how I behave. You know, repentance is often seen as a one-time thing that Christians do as they begin their journey with Christ. And uh, every person in this room who calls themselves a follower of Christ knows that at one point or another, we we grasp this concept of repentance. But we would be fooling ourselves if we thought that repentance was just a one-time thing. In fact, repentance... It's a lifelong commitment to self-reflection that serves as a, a way of doing personal growth that leads us to maturity. I can't tell you how many times that I needed to repent for things in my life. I remember there was this one time I was about eight years old and my family and I we were going to North Carolina for a family trip and we used to go to North Carolina every year for this family Christian conference and the purpose of the conference was that we would be with other families and we would worship together and grow in our relationship with Christ as a family unit that was the purpose of the conference but that's not the reason why I enjoyed going. I mean, I enjoyed going because there was a go kart track right down the road, and I loved go kart racing with my friends. And so every year, my friends and I we would go, and, and we would have just an absolute blast racing each other in go karts. And I remember that there was this one particular year, again, I was probably eight, and we had already gone racing earlier in the week, but I wanted to go again. So I went to my parents, and I said, Mom and Dad, let's go go kart racing. And they told me, Johnny, We've already done that. We're going to save the money, and we're going to use it on something else. So you're just going to have to find another way to entertain yourself. Feeling bummed, I did what anyone would do at my age, and I just went exploring around the hotel. And, I mean, we were just being stupid. Like, we, we went to different doors, and we would knock on the door, and we would run away and just, you know, do <laughs> stupid kid stuff. And I remember uh, we came across this one room, though, And this room was different. It was a little chapel meant for prayer. I remember walking in. The lights were low, kind of like in here, little candles flickering around. And as my friends and I are exploring the chapel, I come across this offering plate that has $20 in it. I can't believe I'm telling this story in church. Um... I remember my parents telling me that people put money in the offering plate because we're giving it to people in need. And I felt like I needed to go go (laughs) go-kart racing. So against my better judgment, I took the $20 and I went up to all my friends' parents to see if they would take me to the go-kart track. Well, naturally, word got back to my parents and my mom came up to me and she goes, hey, I heard you were asking people to take you go-kart racing. And I said, yeah, you heard correctly. (laughs) She goes, and how do you plan on paying for this? Your dad didn't give you money, did he? And I said, no, I plan on paying for it myself. (laughs) She said, with what money? And suddenly I, I just felt put on the spot. my little eight-year-old brain didn't know how to get out of this situation, and I ended up having to confess that I stole $20 out of the church offering plate. And we still debate today on whether or not she spanked me or not, but when I tell you that she spanked me, oh, my goodness, it was a lesson that I learned that I would never want to do again. You know, As I look back on that moment of my life, though, in full transparency, I I think I could honestly say that I was more sorry that I got caught at eight years old than I was for what I did. You know, I was wallowing in my feelings, and I was trying to justify my behavior. And I'm so thankful that the story doesn't end with my mom spanking me, because if it did, I don't think I would have really learned my lesson. You see, it wasn't until I had to return the money that I really felt the shame of what it was that I did. It it showed me that it was me being a reflection of someone who I didn't want to be. And returning the money, it it forced me to look in the mirror and confront the fact that I was being selfish, putting my needs ahead of others. And, uh, you know, my mom, she wasn't, trying to condemn me. My my dad, he wasn't trying to condemn me. He wasn't, they weren't just trying to make me feel bad. They were trying to bring awareness to me about my actions so that the Holy Spirit could convict me. And by the way, here's a, a good just little tidbit. Conviction and condemnation, they're totally different. Conviction always points to something more beautiful. It always points towards a vision. It always points to a way for you to grow. Condemnation just points at yourself, points at your guilt, points at your shame. And so what what ended up happening is I came to my senses and I decided to turn around, turn the other way. What my parents did for me and what Paul did for the Corinthians, it's one of the most loving things that a person can do to examine your behavior and see the areas where you fall short and then call you out on it, out of love, towards maturity. Now, it's a universal truth that no one likes to be rebuked. No one likes having to go in one direction and then being forced to change into another. But listen when I tell you this because few things communicate love so powerfully than someone who has the ability to look you directly in the eye, muster up their courage, and give you a clarion call to embrace maturity. Dr. Jordan Peterson, who's a world-renowned psychologist, has a great quote on maturity. He says this, that the world would have you believe that you are fine just the way that you are. I don't tell people that. That's the wrong story. The right story is you are far less than what you could be. You see, maturity, it's about how you live your life. It's about recognizing that you are not all that you can be and you choosing to willingly go through the pain and discomfort of being fully formed. You're okay with the process being slow. Slow and arduous because you know that... Little steps over time take you great distances. Uh, Jesus has a a powerful story in Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through 32. Um, it's all about a person who undergoes this powerful transformation and embraces maturity. It's about a man who lives in a town and he has two sons. And uh, one day the The younger son comes to the dad and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance. This is a big deal because basically what the son is telling the dad is, Dad, I wish you were dead and I just want your stuff. And so the dad, being a good dad, he looks at his son with love and he gives him everything that he wants, gives him his inheritance. And the son's so excited, he goes off to a distant land, and he just spends like crazy. I mean, he spends on fancy clothes, fancy food, he, uh, you know, wild companions, until the money runs out. And when the money runs out, a famine hits the land, and the the son is so desperate to try to find a, a way to survive that he turns to all of his friends to see if they would help him, but they don't help him. Why would they? They were just using him for his money. So the son is just traveling and traveling and trying to find a way to work, get some money, because he's hungry. And he comes across a farm and he, he was able to work as a farmer and he sees these pigs eating pig slop. And he's just like, man, that looks so good. And it's in that moment that he comes to his senses. And when he comes to his senses, he realizes that even his father's servants had more than this. So he, he, can, he comes up with a plan. He says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell my dad, like, hey, I, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you, and I'm going to come back home, and I, I'm going to just ask that you would take me as a servant, not as a son. I'm not worthy to be your son, but would you just take me back to be your servant? So he makes the journey home, and he's anxious hearts racing. Will dad accept me? Forgive me? Will he just be angry? And the dad sees his son coming from a long way off. And he runs to meet him. I mean, he sprints to meet him. And the, and the son, he's kind of like, oh my gosh, dad's coming, what, what, what's going on? And, and then, and then he, he starts saying his speech, dad, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against, and then he gets interrupted because his dad embraces him. And he says, this son of mine was dead, and now he's alive again. He's lost, but now he's found. And he tells his entire staff, hey, kill the fattened calf, throw a party. We are celebrating the fact that my son has come home. See, guys, this this story about the prodigal son, it's a powerful story that teaches us about forgiveness, redemption, and second chances. It shows us that no matter how much we mess up, how much we mess up our relationships, there's always a way back to love. And that path is called maturity. If we really want to have hope for our relationships, we must embrace the call to maturity, to recognize that who we are, the the, the fences that we've made against people, against God, is not the direction that we want to go in. We want to turn the other direction direction. We want to embrace a vision of what it means to be fully human, to be full of dignity, and embrace this clarion call to maturity. The idea is that you would become a better version of yourself. And can I tell you that better version always looks like Jesus? It always looks like Jesus. Jesus was fully God, And fully man and if we are going to grow into all of our fullness let us look to the cross let us look to the teachings of Jesus let us look to the way he loved one another and recognize you know what this is where I'm falling short Jesus would you speak to the areas of my life that are bleak would you speak to the areas in my life that are dead would you speak to the areas in my life where I know I'm wrong and I just need to turn away go the other way, back to you, back to the good Father that you are. And when we do, wow, that is truly maturity.